Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Christmas from the Beginning of Time, with a message titled, The First Promise of Christmas. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The great English preacher Charles Simeon called Genesis 3.15 the sum and summary of the whole Bible. You know, others have said that the only Bible verse that better captures the entire message of the Bible is John 3.16. You know, from my vantage point, John 3.16 can't be understood at all without Genesis 3.15. But let me go even further. Christmas is meaningless without Genesis 3.15 being explained to us. So let's read it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3, that is the whole chapter, marks the defining moment in world history. It's simply impossible to overstate the importance of this chapter. This chapter tells the day the world changed. No date in world history has so impacted humanity like this day. You know, when Pearl Harbor in Hawaii was attacked in the Second World War, then U.S. President Roosevelt said, this date will live in infamy. But in Genesis 3, that's the real date that lives in infamy, for this date will never be forgotten, not even in eternity. You know, when our first parents rebelled against their creator, all humanity after them was destined to live in a fallen world. Up till that moment, everything was as it should be. God had pronounced everything good, and everything, without exception, was good. I mean, can you imagine such a world? I'm sure that we can't. But now, it's as if the world, which was an unspoiled mirror reflecting the glory of God, suddenly lay shattered into hundreds of broken fragments. You know, it's true that the fragments still reflect God's glory, but the picture has now become distorted and always misleading. Sin had entered into the human family. There are a number of biblical words for sin. Transgression, rebellion, trespass, lawlessness, unrighteousness, iniquity, offense, wickedness, abomination, guilt, love of darkness. The words are many, and each of them help fill in an entire picture of what we're talking about. All sin is rebellion against God. It's our declaration of war against God. It's motivated by hatred and utter despising of God and his authority. And at its heart, It's pure evil. You and I were born into just this kind of a world. It's now all that we know. We're rebels, a nature we inherited from our first parents. From the moment we draw breath, we come out of the womb breathing hatred against God, and the effects, well, they're everywhere. Lies, hatred, theft, killing, wars, acts of terrorism, character assassination, slander, sexual uncleanness, all is done with an outstretched fist against God. And we all suffer because of our sin. We will all experience pain and misunderstanding and emptiness and disease and alienation and sexual confusion, breaking of relationships, and ultimately death. It's all of this that's evil. The Christmas story is well stated in John 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Genesis 3 is the chapter intended to teach us how such wickedness could have come into the world. It, It sets the record straight and tells us the true and accurate history of our love affair with sin. 
But Genesis 3 teaches us that sin didn't originate inside of us. That is, evil did not begin with the human race. We were enticed into evil. Genesis 3 verse 1 simply identifies the tempter as the serpent, and he is described as crafty, which means that he is skilled in deception. But who is the serpent, and and how did he find his way into the garden? First, it's been popular today to deny that the serpent of Genesis 3 has any identification with Satan the way he's described in the rest of the Bible, but that's precisely what the New Testament claims. Listen to what John says in Revelation 12, verse 9. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. But how did we get from there with the image of a serpent to a full-blown picture of Satan, the deceiver of the human race? And the answer is that this is the direction we find in the Old Testament. Remember that the first five books of the Bible are from Moses, and even though Satan by name is not mentioned there, demons are. In Leviticus 17, verse 7, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, Moses says that the idols and the false gods around Israel were in fact demons. So then the Old Testament picture of idolatry that so tempted the Israelites throughout so much of their history is in fact spiritual warfare. Paul repeats that theme in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, when he says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Well, if it is demons that constantly lead God's people away from the living God, why should it seem surprising that the leader of the demons was himself in the garden at the beginning of creation, leading the entire human race into sin? That's the clear picture of Genesis 3. So notice how it goes. Evil did not originate in the human heart. Rather, we were seduced into sin by Satan. And so evil and sin and rebellion against God and all the effects of it are satanic. Second, please also notice that evil is enticing. Listen to Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The first thing that Eve noticed when she was on the brink of sin was how attractive it looked. Sin is not initially ugly. Indeed, at its beginning, sin is overwhelmingly beautiful. It's seductive. It's appealing. It's inviting. Satan never comes to say, this is going to kill you. He comes to say, this is beautiful. You know, one of the best feelings that you're ever going to have is the initial feeling of sin. Anger and revenge, control over others, getting your own way, and feeling as if you're a god. Well, these are powerful aphrodisiacs. On top of that, the enticement to do evil came not in the form of a red dragon with a pitchfork in his hand, but in the form of a serpent. You know, there must have been many serpents in the original creation. They must have seemed common and ordinary. The fact that this serpent speaks may not have troubled Eve, for she lived in a world where God entered every evening to speak with her and her husband, where an angel stood with a flaming sword on the outside of the garden, and where the impact of heaven was everywhere being felt. It didn't seem to Eve at that moment that she was about to commit an unspeakable evil and doom the human race into misery. It only seemed overwhelmingly enticing. 
Indeed, it's this ability to entice the human race into evil that is the first powerful weapon that Satan has. When Jesus first encountered him in his temptation, recorded both in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the very first temptation was, command these stones to become bread. After having fasted for 40 days, the enticement to eat was no doubt powerful. Of course, unlike our first parents, Jesus saw through this instantly. What Satan wanted was that he, rather than the Father, would direct the desires of Jesus, but Jesus knew that he must do the will of the Father. So you remember that it was Peter who told Jesus that he didn't have to suffer. And Jesus saw this immediately for what it was. Satan stood behind Peter, whispering through Peter to accept security rather than the road of the cross. Jesus saw the hand of Satan everywhere. In Luke 13, verse 16, he said that it was Satan who had disabled a woman for 18 years. To the religious leaders who opposed him, Jesus said in, in John 8:44 that they were of their father, the devil. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus called Satan the thief who came to steal and to kill and to destroy. Indeed, if we become aware of it, we should see that with the coming of Jesus into the world, this is the coming of the one who does battle with the one who has enticed the human race into sin. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Revelation 12, verse 4 portrays the Christmas event the way that it does. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And that's precisely the account of Herod, who sent soldiers into Bethlehem to kill every child under two in that village. Behind King Herod's murderous rage stood Satan himself, seeking to destroy Jesus before the battle between them would ever be engaged. And all of that takes us back to Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve first fell into sin. At that time, the first promise of Christmas appears, and it appears in the form of a war between Satan and the promised seed of the woman, the coming Savior who would be the Redeemer of the world. Christmas is more than family traditions, gifts, and festive music. Christmas is a promise kept. God promised to send a Savior, and Christmas is the fulfillment of that pledge. For this reason, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the teaching of God's Word, and your dependable support enables the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to fulfill that mission. As 2022 draws to a close, many listeners consider a special gift as an expression of their support for faithful, trustworthy Bible teaching. This year, our goal is to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will allow Back to the Bible Canada to enter 2023 prepared to respond to the increasing need and opportunity to engage the world around us with solid Bible teaching you can trust. To give a gift to the year-end goal, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Genesis 3, 14 to 15 says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that is, deceived the human race and led them into sin and ruin, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, I'll not spend a great deal of time with verse 14, only to notice that God curses the serpent. From the day he deceived the human race, the serpent would be viewed with contempt. And that's precisely what we find. Although we do know that there are those who are fascinated with Satan, yet to the most part, the human race finds the evil one to be repulsive. Now to verse 15. From the serpent's perspective, he had taken humanity and wrestled them away from God. And now humanity was his. But then we find that that's not to be. Verse 15 begins with God saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You know, that word enmity means intense hatred. The word is used in Numbers 35 verse 21 to speak of the kind of animosity that results in murder. In Ezekiel 25, it speaks of the kind of hostility that causes nations to go to war with each other. Enmity means disgust. It means extreme revulsion. It means utter contempt. And there's the first promise of Christmas. Instead of Satan now having the woman, the woman and the serpent will hate each other with an undying hatred. Satan may have seduced her and her husband into sin and a curse. Satan may be leading the whole world astray, inspiring lies and murder, and yet he will be utterly hated. His dreams for recruiting all of mankind was going to fail. Now to the next section in verse 15. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. It turns out that the battle goes beyond the woman and the serpent. The hostility between them will be continued by their descendants. But what can that mean? You know, one has to go to the rest of Genesis to discover who the various descendants actually are. In chapter 4, the hostility is seen as Cain kills Abel. Abel longs to worship God, and Cain hates him, kills him. And from this, we are not to infer that the seed of the serpent are all unbelievers. Rather, they are those who drink the devil's spirit and willingly obey the devil's rule. By Genesis 6, if God had not intervened, Satan's offspring would have completely killed the woman's offspring. Now, some of you might wonder what I meant when I said Satan's offspring is not a reference to everyday unbelievers. Let me help spell that out. In John 8, 44, Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees who are seeking to put him to death by spreading hatred and lies about him. And here's what Jesus said about them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Jesus never spoke that way to prostitutes and tax collectors and everyday sinners. The seed or offspring of the serpent will be at war with the offspring of the woman who are characterized as the people of God. The enmity will continue in every generation, just like today, where believers are slandered and many are murdered for their faith all around the world. Now, that sounds like bad news, but but the passage is not yet done. Genesis 3.15 ends by saying, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I hope you noticed what's going on here. Notice who the pronouns refer to. The first he refers to the offspring of the woman, but here, rather than being in the plural, as in the generations of offspring, the he is a singular he. He, one offspring of the woman. 
Now notice the second pronoun, which is the his, and it refers not to the offspring of the serpent, but to the serpent himself. The warfare between Satan's seed and the woman's seed finally comes down to a showdown, if you will, a climax between one offspring of the woman and the serpent himself. In this showdown, the serpent bruises the heel of the woman's offspring. That would indicate that he is wounded, but the seed of the woman would bruise or wound the head of the serpent. That would mean that the serpent is finally crushed. Imagine the scene where a serpent strikes the heel of a man, but the man then tromps on his head, that part of the serpent that's most vulnerable, and thus utterly destroying the rule or effectiveness of the serpent. And that leads us to think about the first promise of Christmas. The serpent or the devil who leads the whole world astray will be mortally wounded and defeated before a great champion to come, a champion of righteousness. So let's track. Evil, that thing of satanic origin, perverts and subverts the human race, leading us into a ruinous rebellion against God. But then comes a marvelous promise. Satan will not ultimately succeed. A future seed of the woman, a great champion, is going to enter into this world and will utterly prevail over the serpent. Years later, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 verse 4, speaking of Jesus, called him one born of a woman. Now, you might read that and say, well, of course he's born of a woman, but, but Paul has in mind Genesis 3.15. This, he announces, is the seed of the woman promised on the day when mankind fell. So let's consider Jesus. You know, we've already noticed that at his birth, Magi from the east entered into Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And King Herod, that virtual madman with insane jealousy, hears that a king is born. Immediately, Satan whispers into his ear, you've got to murder him. He does so because Satan is not unaware of the ancient prophecy from Genesis 3.15. And so the military enters Jerusalem to kill the young boys, and Satan stands behind to kill and to destroy. But God intervened, and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and thus fulfill the words from Hosea that out of Egypt I have called my son. And as Jesus becomes a man, the battle does not lessen, but only intensifies. We've already noticed the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan attempts on Jesus the same strategy that he used on Eve. But what we learn very quickly is that where Eve and where Adam failed, this offspring of the woman prevails. This one, the Bible calls him the second Adam, the one who undid what the first one did. This one did not succumb to the deception and craft of the serpent. And with this came venomous hatred between Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, and the serpent. And Satan then incites hatred against Christ, which eventually leads to the cross. Hear what Paul says about the cross in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, although it may not be clear to us at first glance, Christ and the Christmas event is the theme of Genesis 3.15. He is the ultimate seed of the woman. It is he who has subjected Satan to public disgrace on the cross, crushing the serpent's head. In the process, his heel was bruised, and he suffered terribly for us. 
but he has won for us our great victory. You know, many of you know Charles Wesley's wonderful Christmas hymn. It's sung by churches across the country and around the world. It's my favorite Christmas hymn. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know, you might not know it, but we typically sing only three verses, and Wesley, in fact, wrote four verses. Indeed, I wish we would sing that fourth verse because I think it's especially powerful, for in the fourth verse, Wesley truly saw what Christmas, indeed the entire event of Christ, truly means. So let me quote it to you. Verse 4, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That's precisely what Jesus has done. He has come, and as Isaiah prophesied, he would be bruised for our iniquities and in the process would crush under his foot the power of Satan. And in this, Whenever we celebrate this way at Christmas, we celebrate the crushing of Satan's head. You know, the good news is, no matter how great your sin, how deep your unbelief and pride, how vile a person you are, Christ has come to rescue you from Satan's power, if only you will surrender to him. And that message comes to us from Genesis 3 with the first promise of Christmas. Heavenly Father, thank you for the coming of Jesus. Thank you that Satan has been defeated. Thank you that the desire of nations has come. John, thanks so much for your message today. But let's go a little bit off script with our talk today. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about the Christmas carol that you mentioned, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that fourth verse, you know, we so often uh, don't take advantage of all the incredible theology there are in some of these Christmas carols, including this one, and maybe we should pay a bit more attention. Yeah, I I know that many times we'll leave verses out of sometimes powerful and profound hymns and, and not even know what was there. And then here's another thought that I have, Ben. You know, sometimes this whole idea of, you know, bruising the serpent's head and likeness of Adam effacing and stamping the image of Christ in its place and Christ being the second Adam, I fear that some of this stuff is no longer understood. So I would say if anyone's listening and you're a new songwriter today, build theology into what you write. That's so powerful. Well, let's get back to the Bible then, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With the Christmas season upon us, it's hard not to reflect on the most recent Israel experience hosted by Back to the Bible Canada earlier this year. Visiting many of the New Testament locations where Jesus himself walked makes the celebration of our Savior's arrival even more impactful. Well, I've got some good news. Back to the Bible Canada will be hosting another tour of the Holy Land on April 16th to the 24th, 2023, with an optional extension to Jordan, April 24th to the 29th. With Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, musical guest Amanda Stott, and the ministry leadership team, you're guaranteed to have a pilgrim experience that transforms your understanding of the Word and your journey of faith. If you're interested in joining us, reserve your spot today. Numbers are limited, 
to ensure the most intimate of experiences. So visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425.